Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Richard Fung by David Garneau. My name is Rebecca Jelaine and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai First Nations, as well as the Tsutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This interview was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they've experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Richard Fung is a video artist, cultural critic, and professor emeritus in the Faculty of Art at OCAD University. Much of his work deals with the legacy of colonialism in his birthplace of Trinidad and Tobago, Asian diaspora, and the intersection of race, gender, and queer sexuality. David Garneau, Métis, is a visual arts professor at the University of Regina whose practice includes painting, curation, and critical writing. In this interview, David and Richard cover a wide range of issues, following Richard's passionate curiosity about different topics and attention to historical nuance. They touch on the interplay between theory and activism, and Richard recounts how AIDS activism required immediate and creative action that informed theoretical perspectives. Richard then talks about his Chinese Trinidadian upbringing and how this shaped his views on the nuances of racial identity, noting that Trinidadian society upholds a complicated hierarchy. Richard also talks about his relationship to masculinity as a child and how it evolved into adulthood in the different places he has lived. In discussing his film, See in the Blood, Richard reveals how his partner's experience with AIDS and his sister's genetic disease made him rethink medicine's relationship to bodies and the medical gaze's formation of identities. Finally, David and Richard discuss the importance of forming and continuing relationships between racially minoritized and immigrant Canadians and Indigenous peoples. I've got questions that I want to ask, but I, there are a few, I mean, when I was trying to imagine answering the first ones, it really made me think of my work in a ways that I don't normally, so I'd like to start that with you. So the first one was, what's the most important work you've produced in your estimation? Work that I've produced? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, you know, I didn't even look at that question. Yeah, I mean, it surprised <laughs> so, me too. I haven't really thought of my own work that way. The most important work. Well, I mean, I know the work that's circulated most. Mm-hmm. 
probably is not a video word. It's an essay. Uh, and it's an essay called Looking for My Penis, the Eroticized Asian and Gay Video Porn. Oh, okay. I don't think I read that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was produced for a conference that was happening in 1989. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and then it, it actually had this kind of controversial history because it caused Douglas Crimp to, to actually resign from the October, from being an editor of October Journal. Um, because he stood up for it, and many of the people on the board had said it was identity politics. Right? Wow. Um, Douglas, I'm thinking of that because Douglas died in the last year. And, yeah. Um, and I just asked to create an image in memory of him. But that piece, which I then toured across North America as a, um, a, a an illustrated lecture, and then it got it still keeps getting reprinted. So it's been reprinted in all these anthologies, and I think it was just reprinted again last year. So I guess in terms of the work that has the most circulation and impact, what it's dealing with is looking at how... It's looking at the conversions of race, gender, and sexuality, mm-hmm. and, and the place that it has in the regime of racism and racial hierarchy, etc. So it's looking at sexuality. I mean, at that time, I was influenced by people like Frantz Fanon and mm-hmm. um, thinking about those kinds of questions. In terms of video work, the work that's gotten the most circulation... If I, if I can ask yeah. you, though, I want to follow that a little bit. So what was the... I mean, I understand some of the social politics around October magazine, but what do you think challenged them the most that they weren't ready for? Well, I remember there was one. There was an article that I later read by one of the. Um, I can't remember which one of them, so I'm not even going to name <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, you know the senior people that were associated with October, and she wrote uh, something a kind of critique of the slogan "What do we want? You know, when when do we want it now?" Okay. And saying that 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 kind of um, expectation or demand for immediacy or in, in um, among activists also cut off the possibility of theorizing and going deeper. Within all struggles, I think, there is a kind of a tension between the action and the thinking. Okay. And it's a productive tension, yeah. I think, right? And I think uh, they very much moved into the idea of theory and theorizing. And in the meantime, Douglas, who at that time had not had a PhD, Okay. He later became, got his PhD when the university began demanding more of those things. Right. And he uh, was caught up in AIDS activism. Yeah, that's right? just what I was thinking, that overlap, that's such a hot time. Yeah, and so, and I think the AIDS, act, AIDS activism demanded action. Yeah, yeah. An action that was often immediate and responsive and very creative, because if you look at AIDS activism... There were so many artists involved, and uh, performance was really key in terms of, you know, AIDS activism. Yeah. And but there was that bleeding over into theory, too, which was cha- very challenging. Yeah, I mean, like... Because it was immediate. It made theory important. Yeah. Also because so many theorists, like, you know, Greg Bordewitz and in Canada, um, and people like Monica Gagnon were writing about uh, AIDS and stuff like that. So, yeah... There was this convergence at the moment, and I think, so there might have been many different factors, but mm-hmm. it was me and a couple, I think there was another one of the authors from the conference. It eventually came out as a book um, through Seattle Bay Press, but then my particular thing has been 
anthologized a lot. And it's what do you think gives it sustaining power other than that crisis moment? Well, I think f it's because I think for um, Asian men in North America, the relationship to masculinity or the idea of unmasculinity is it a tie that that particular or orientalist framework yeah. is still it still affects their lives and I think one of the things I was trying to do with that also was to do it in such a way in which it didn't valorize a masculinist position in which what we have to do is say no Asian men have big dicks and Asian men are ma are masculine but do it in sync with a feminist project. Um, and also do it in sync with an anti-racist project, right? That um, that was not about a kind of racial nationalism, but okay. also thinking about how race functioned. So it's funny because I I do meet people who read it and get in touch with me still, and they wow. you know these are people because it came out in 1991. The book came out in 1991, wow. saying that it still is resonant for them. Just kind of. Um, it's interesting to hear and depressing on how things haven't changed. Because mm -hmm. when I go back to read the book, there are some things that I think of, you know, like how discourse has changed. Like I was just looking when, just at the last minute, you know, you're going to interview me because I've been so obsessed with uh, my interview of Smaro, mm -hmm. thinking of things that I had been involved with and going back and seeing how the framings have changed and the language has changed, the language of an identity has changed. That's interesting because th those are among the questions that I want to ask you. This these interviews seem to be obsessing about history, and I do think about history, but I'm really interested in its impact on the contemporary or on the moment. Mm -hmm. Like, why we choose certain histories, and the question I wanted to ask you was around those intersections of Asian identity, diasporic identity, but particularly around masculinity and how they've changed for you from childhood and, and all your various locations. I know that's a big, broad sweep, but it's a way of sort of talking about past, present, and maybe into the future, but how things have changed, but particularly that intersection of location. Well, okay, so I, you know, I was born in Trinidad. I am fourth generation Chinese Trinidadian on my mom's side. So I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a Chinese community until I was 16 that is very different from what Chinese Canadian is taken to mean. And I think for me, that was productive because what it meant is that when I came here, I was able to perhaps shed some, to make what might be useful interventions, hopefully, into, into a kind of identity formation or narration about an identity formation that uh, was different from what, the, what was seen as the truths, I think, or the inevitabilities of Chineseness. Okay, so one of them is that, you know, the the idea of ancestor worship and the importance of genealogy, uh, etc. Well, in Trinidad, a lot of the people who went there, my, you know, my mother's family went as indentured workers. They worked on sugar plantation, um, sugar or cocoa plantations in the in the eighteen from the eighteen sixties on my my own family, and many of them took left their Chinese names behind. Wow. They took on Western names mm -hmm. or other names. So I have cousin, I have one of my close cousins. Their last name is McLean. Yeah. And that is, there's no Scott in that family. Was this a Christian influence? or as a Christian. Some people yeah. took on, like the slaves, they took on the names of their estate oh, owners. Oh, wow. Okay. Some of them, I think, in that, well, oh, some of them took on the names of um, missionaries who converted them. Mm -hmm. 
some of them took on kind of fanciful versions of a Chinese name. So one of my mother, my grandmother was, her maiden name was Atek, A-T-T-E-C-K, which is not a name in Chinese, but it comes from Chantak. So Chinese names in the Caribbean have this weird things, you know, like Chinese names traditionally are three syllables, like Mao Zedong, and the surname goes first, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if you could imagine that person uh, migrating to a place like Guyana, where they tended to have the Chinese names as all three. So all of his children and his grandchildren would be called, you know, Roger Mazito, right? Like the mm, name of the okay. person got frozen yeah, yeah. as the name, the surname. But many of them, it's the tongue that got taken as the surname, okay. which is really their first the name yeah, became yeah. taken as a surname. So it's those kinds of histories. Is this a way of being no longer Chinese-China relation in a way of being in this new place? Or what was, what was or is it just a way of other people being able to recognize them? In, well, well some the of them is colonial. Like my family name is F-U-N-G, but it sounds like the, a name that my... It, it doesn't sound like my real Chinese name if you look at it. So I have my uncle, my paternal uncle, went to Jamaica where they spelled it in a way transliterated F-O-N-G, which sounds more like what it should be. Okay. So we look like we have different names, but we're cousins. In some cases, you know, my mom being perhaps ungenerous, and I'm not sure because it's based on her memory of her aunts, said that her great, her, her aunt wanted to have a fancy sounding names and named herself after the richest person in the <laughs> town that they were in. Okay. So there are those kinds of different things. One of my other family's name is, their Chinese name was Lu, but then they became Lucien, L-U-C-I-N, oh, boy. as a last name. So there's that thing, and even my father, who was born in China and went to Trinidad in the, in the 1920s, was very Chinese-identified, mm-hmm. but never wanted to have anything to do with China. Didn't want us to go back, didn't imagine himself ever going back. And that may have had to do also with the fact that he was Hakka, which is this kind of ethnic minority okay. people in China. So. I don't want to take you away from this narrative, but I'm so curious about when I think of European ancestors, they came in as colonists and settlers on the behalf of the nation. That's such mm-hmm. a different. Do you, did these folks come in because they were indentured as individual agents looking to free themselves from their servitude eventually or did they see themselves as part of the nation like how do they orientate themselves to how do they home in the new place and do they want to go back to china like you're saying this one case not but um the okay so the chinese went to trinidad they were the first group of people who were tried out as indentured labor. Let me just give you a, a background. So there's slavery. Trinidad had an unusual slavery in the sense that only a smaller portion of African slaves came from Africa. Most slaves came to Trinidad via places like Haiti, okay. right? And the story of Trinidad is it's right off the coast of Venezuela. I have described it like it's like a fly on the nose of South America. <laughs> yeah. Uh, geographically and flora and fauna and all that is actually South American. It's not West Indian. It's not Caribbean. Okay. Even though it's like at the end of the chain. But it's like it belonged to the Spanish, but it was not the way to anywhere with gold. Okay. So unlike places like Cuba and Puerto Rico, where you know, it is part of the galleon trade, mm-hmm. 
no one wanted to settle there. And I, I think they were afraid that the British would take it over or pirates would take it over. So at some point, the Spaniards issued something called a cedula, which invited any Christians to settle there. And uh, the French Catholics, sorry. Catholics. I was going to say. Yeah, 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 the Catholics. Yeah, yeah. So freed what were called free colored. So people, slaves who had freed themselves, moved mm-hmm. there, often with their own slaves. And uh, after the Haitian Revolution, a lot of landowners moved there. And uh, French Revolution, people from Martinique, Guadeloupe, also from the French area, moved there. So, as a plantation society. Yes. Yeah, so, in fact, the majority of people were actually francophone, or I'm not sure what the word is, creolophone. <laughs> my my mom spoke the patois, which a, a Haitian friend of mine just recognized and said is actually very very close. It's almost he said it's identical to the Haitian creole, as mm. opposed to the the Martinican and Guadeloupean one, which. The Martinique and Guadeloupe are quite close to Trinidad, and Haiti is quite far away. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear that there's that. So that was it had a f- uh, kind of francophone base and a Spanish-speaking administration. Mm-hmm. And then Trinidad was the last colony to become British. So right at the end of the 1700s. Okay, okay. The, when the slaves were freed, the slaves thought that they would finally get wages. The plantation owners were not willing to do that. They were not willing to meet the demands of the slaves that instead looked elsewhere for alternate sources of labor, of cheap labor. So in the Trinidad case, there were people from China first tried out, India. India. So India has the largest ethnic group in Trinidad, but also Madeira, because they were growing sugarcane in in Madeira. So the Portuguese indentured workers. Then there were also post-slavery African indentured workers. But that was really fascinating to me. I don't know enough about the people who came from West Africa. Mm-hmm. Quote-unquote by choice. And this question I'm saying quote-unquote is because in many instances, the choice was not really a choice. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Indian ones, for example, um, Amitav Ghosh has written about it in, in his trilogy that, that begins with Sea of Poppies, which looks at Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, where most migrants left from. And what was happening with poppy, you know, the opium production, people being thrown off the land. Mm -hmm. Also, not just due to the British as Indian progressive scholars remind me, but also because of their own kind of exploitative class and caste structure within India itself, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's all, all, that's an important thing to remember because often people tend to think it's easy to blame the, 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 you know, the colonists like yeah. the Brits, but in terms of China, you have an, you know, an imperial system and, inter- and India also. Uh, not an imperial system necessarily, but you know, an oppressive, very strict feudal system. And in China, it was a period of turmoil. Different people, I think, left for different reasons. There was famine. The Hakkas experienced a huge amount of discrimination and there had been a war and there was an ethnic a kind of genocide of Hakkas in China. And so those are the, all the different kind of push factors. Mm-hmm. But there's a way in which when people came, these indentured workers, they, their conditions on the plantation weren't that different from slaves, right? But at the same time, they were kind of strike breakers. <laughs> you know, oh, kind of, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah because yeah, yeah. there's a way in which their presence... Uh, was what allowed uh, slave owners to not rely on African Mm -hmm. labor anymore, but to exploit these new groups of people. So it's a very complicated position. And those those were terms of contract, right? They They were were terms of contract, five to ten years, and then people were either supposed to get a 
a passage back or stay. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm not sure of the percentages. I think a, a lot of, I don't, I, I've never actually seen the percentage of people of the Chinese who went back. Some of the Indian who went back, and there is a scholar based in Montreal who's actually traced Nalini Mohabir. She's gone to India and traced the memories of families who returned. Return. Wow. Because uh, indentureship for Indians ended, I think it was like 1917. So it's a complicated hierarchy and a very complicated racial hierarchy because the yeah. ruling class in Trinidad was governmentally Anglophone, but the wealthiest people were actually Francophone with. French aristocratic names. They're all called de this and de that, yeah, right? Wow. So when I came to Canada, what I found was that many Chinese Canadians only saw themselves in relation to white racism and white okay. supremacy and had a position of, I don't know what to call it, it might be innocence or something in relation to race. I came from a position, a country in which the Chinese had a complicated situation, not white but sometimes almost white, right? And also able to do well in business or whatever, partly because of anti-black racism, right? Mm-hmm. So I never saw myself as innocent. So yeah. when I came and I entered this discourse of, you know, like, and also the kind of glorious history of the, of the railway and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. the more I researched the railway and its complication, particularly around indigenous people and the way that it tied the nation together. So I've always had this kind of... I think more ambivalent okay. relationship to thinking about race and Chinese positionality within it. So that's so how I think. Were you I'm saying formed. then that there's a response to anti-Asian, anti-Chinese racism that was constructed? Did that kind of different constructing here versus from all the other places you've lived? Because I know you, rather than just Trinidad, you were also. In, in Europe Ireland. as well. In in Ireland. Ireland. Yeah, in Ireland, people didn't know. My sister in law is Irish, and one time I went to visit her family who are in the south of Ireland, the very south of the island, and somebody said, Mrs. Mulroney has Africans visiting. Uh, At that time, that was yeah. like Ireland. Nobody wanted to go there. It was the second poorest country in Western yeah, Europe. Yeah. Portugal and Ireland were the two poorest countries. Um, now it's a site of immigration when I last went I which is a couple of years ago I hadn't been for many decades mm-hmm. and it's so different like you know it's very multicultural now yeah it's a that's a different place but yeah understanding diaspora and understanding how people are positioned in different places has been important to me and but knowing the complexity does it insulate you from any kind of singular racism I don't know, you know what I mean insulate, how do you mean well, I think that because you you have such a complex background and, and so many people do uh, who are immigrating to Canada, I find that racism, I'm just thinking about my childhood, it was just so narrow, you know, and un, un, uninformed. But as soon as you meet and talk to folks from other places, it opens it up. And you can't be racist. Does that make sense? Because it's it, there's such complexity to a person's lived experience and background. Mm. There's no stereotype that fits, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell in terms of how people may respond to me. But, I mean, the the other thing that I think was a big difference is the way that racism functioned in Canada, which is, you know, there was a law in Saskatchewan, actually, where Chinese 
businesses couldn't hire white women. Cafe Daughter, did you yeah. see that play? Yeah. I haven't actually seen it, but I know that they're It's all. remarkable. It's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Right. And there was so much anxiety. But, I mean, there was no interrogation of those positions to yeah. find out who they are. Right. Does that make sense? So the indigenous understanding of Chinese people is through the cafe, yeah. you know, and they were the only places on the prairies, anyways, I don't know about other places, that would serve folks, right. you know. And so there was this... I was telling Fred when I grew up in the 70s, there were no, outside of the politics and, and for youth there, that wasn't, I don't think people identified as much. Bruce Lee was mm -hmm. the figure, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, but I'm curious, I guess what I'm wondering, even when you were talking about, you made a gesture with your face the other day about people look like you know, me, people who look <laughs> like you. And I was thinking, okay, now who looks like you and what are you exactly <laughs> saying? We, I think we were talking about uh, Tibet or, or well, yeah, some of these regions. Northeastern India. Yeah. And when I was in uh, Bangladesh, which is the first time anywhere in, in that uh, Southeast Asia area, I was so impressed by, so the indigenous folks there, the, the hill track people, um, it was about a location and a history, but definitely there was an ontology of skin color. Mm -hmm. And when I brought that up, it was that was definitely the taboo thing. Yeah. It like, it was, I was quite shocked, you know, with, with lightness at the top. But also, you were talking about different phenotypes, though, that would be recognizable to... It's just so complex, do you know what I mean? It's Well, in terms of South, South Asia, because I've spent a fair bit of time in India now, and the Adivasi which is a name for our indigenous people. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it's very complex because some people are quite different in terms of phenotype. And yeah. in terms of the people in the Northeast, the people who look like me, quote-unquote, who look sort of East Asian or Southeast Asian in a way. Yeah, a lot of those people face serious discrimination in yeah. cities like Delhi yeah. because a lot of them are beaten up because yeah, they are thought... Of as, as meat eaters, that's the insult. They're meat eaters oh, okay. because they're people who come from places where their big diet is pork, right? And, yeah. and they're tribal people, yeah. and yeah, so they're seen as as these sort of I'm not quite sure what the word would be, kind of savage people in a way. Well, they want to lead into the gender and how that shifted, um, particularly by location and various types of legibility, or I don't even know where to begin. It's just so rich. You mean, well, the gender thing, one of the things around gender is, so I started saying that, um, you know, Canada had laws to prevent miscegenation right. from mm -hmm. Asians intermarrying with white folks, primarily. Whereas in the Trinidad context, there was never a bachelor society. I mean, there were, there were cases in which men arrived, but most of those men had families with black women or uh, Indian women or whatever. So what is called Chinese in Trinidad is actually quite mixed. And okay. I showed a film of my first cousin who mm -hmm. is Chinese on her father's side, but her mother is African, French, and Carib. Right? And that is that is very common. Now, is that Canada. something the British encouraged? Because they discouraged it in Canada, but the French encouraged it for a period of time with Indigenous anyways. They didn't... I don't think they cared. It was uncontrollable. They, 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 <laughs> they didn't really care. And so there is a... There, there is a racial hierarchy of, you know, whiteness mm. and uh, um, also an anti-blackness. Mm. But there's a way in which in between and who's marrying whom and who's having children. Who's, is, I don't think there was, I mean, I'm not aware of it. There might have been an internally within communities there would be, there would have been different kinds of policing that happened. 
But Trinidad is a somewhat unusual case. It's, I think it's the most racially mixed of all of the countries in the, the island states. So, you know, they're the various Europeans, particularly English and French, the Portuguese, the Indians, the Chinese, and Africans, and people from the Middle East. So there's also a significant Syrian-Lebanese community as wow. well. Is that a more recent thing? From or? the beginning of the 1900s. Wow. People are known as Syrians, but yeah. um, mostly people are now from what would now be Lebanon, but it's also, you know, like Ottoman identities and Syria. Um, so complex. Yeah, and there's a there's a, a lot of... Some communities mix more than others, but uh, yeah, most people are very, like, multiracial. It's like Cape Town is like that, too, mm. where you, are, you see many people in Cape Town and there. You know, they're Arrange. Indonesian and Indian and African yeah. and Dutch and... So in terms of uh, your identity, you say masculine identity, did that change from location or did you have an internalized sense that how... how well, I was a faggy little boy <laughs> and I was a sissy and there were ways in which, um, you know, so I faced teasing and stuff in my family and all that. And I remember reading in Trinidad the evening paper about Stonewall, actually, the Stonewall wow. riot, which is in 1969 and yeah. it's often marked as the beginning of the Liberation. gay rights movement, yeah. the second gay rights movement, because there was one in Germany before the Nazis came. Yeah. Um, and so I became involved very soon after I came here. There was no such thing in Ireland, at least that I knew of. Uh, and so I became involved shortly after I came to Canada. But I entered the gay movement through a peculiar thing. I became involved through an organization called the Marxist Institute. Okay. In 1975. Which is a... 75? 1975. Okay, I was at University of Toronto in my first year, um, and I took a course in sociology, and I was interested... Um, I was interested in social movements and kind of radical politics from Trinidad, because it was a time of the Black Power Movement. Stokely Carmichael is Trinidadian. Yeah. Wow. Michael X in Britain is Trinidad. He was also Trinidadian. So I was interested in those things. And my TA said, oh, if you're interested, you could go. There's this thing called the Marxist Institute. They give courses in Marxism. They read Capital and stuff like that. So I, I wrote a letter that I never heard back. And then I got a letter, I think later that fall, from Tim McCaskill saying, I'm sorry. Uh, I was sweeping up the office and I found <laughs> your letter behind a, a desk. No. Right? <laughs> Tim is still my partner now. Oh man! So I went to yeah. the I went to there intending to um, take a course in the introduction to Marxism, and then I saw on the board there was a course on deliberation and Marxism. This is in seventy five. Yeah. So That's then I amazing. I went to that, yeah. and um, and then I met a lot of people, some of whom are some of the leading activists, intellectual activists now still in Canada. People like um, Gary Kinsman. And so that's how I got into gay liberation, a very peculiar way. Wow. That's astounding. Wow. So when you describe yourself as a faggy little boy, yeah. was that something that you could hold on to and make work at that time? Or was it uh, pain, pain, pain? What was the... Um, pain, pain, pain. I mean, I tried to... When I came to Canada, I also went to shrink. I thought I would... I was very lucky because I went to the shrink and I thought, okay, I'm going to get cured. Okay. And I was very lucky because the shrink said, 
you're a little confused about your, you know, what you want to be right now, but let's just see what happens. And this is on the cusp of the DSM changing, I guess. Yeah, right? I so, guess so, yeah. yeah. And um, so that would have been 74. Yeah, right at that um, yeah. Uh, So I was lucky that I actually have had a shrink that helped me come out. Okay. But many people didn't have that kind of story, right? But uh, prior to that, was there acceptance or a, a place for you in terms no. of community? Okay. That's no, I mean, not, not that I sought it out. I mean, well, I did kind of seek it out when I came to Canada. Cause okay. When I came to Canada, you know, I came here as a teenager still to go to school. and So I then got involved there. But my first activism actually was not around gay rights. It was around um, the anti-apartheid movement. That's my first thing. And wow. so also meeting, I was, I was part of the Toronto Committee for the Liberation of Southern Africa. That informed my later organization building and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, I mean, this sounds like obvious background for that essay. What made you need to do it in that environment to write in that way? Do you know what I mean? Is, is, I mean, there's different forms of activism and, and writing is... I don't want to be interviewing myself yet, but there's when you commit yourself to paper like that, that you're out, you're committed, you're identified in a particular way. Were you ready for that kind of intellectual position that's going to be a a permanent on your permanent record? Well, I I described myself in the past in a way I wouldn't do now. So this is one of the things where language has changed. I said I lived a life, a kind of schizophrenic life, and I I I, I, um, that's one of the words I said cultural schizophrenia in that essay. And as I taught it last year, I decided, well, I, I realized, I said, you know, that's a language of that period. It was something um, that I would not use today yeah. because of the way we think of mental health issues, mm-hmm. the, the kind of critique and about the definition of schizophrenia. Aren't this, exactly. Yeah, yeah, popular culture version. Yes. And, yeah. So the popular culture version is this kind of like uh, bifurcated identity. Yeah. Um, and so I'd have this kind of um, gay life where I lived in this commune for 13 years. Wow. Gay, I, I left this gay commune for 13 years. But everybody was white. Everybody I knew in that okay. was white. And then I'd go home, uh, and then I'd be in this Caribbean Chinese family or whatever. And it was like two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly what I, why I uh, did activism later. But there was an article that I came across in a journal called, the, a magazine called The Asian Alien. And it, was, it said something like, I forget the name of the title. It was written by Gerald Chan, and it was called something like Gay and, Gay and Asian. As simple as that. And this was, like I think, in 1979 it was published. And I was amazed because I didn't expect to see anything about sexuality, homosexuality, in an Asian journal, and a sympathetic one. Mm-hmm. So I got very excited. I ended up joining the collective of that journal, that magazine, which was really interesting because it was pan-Asian. Okay. So it was... Um, there were people from South Asia, Southeast Asia, and East Asia. A lot of Japanese Canadians in that period who were much more central in terms of, I think, often having more cultural capital because they were, you know, most of the people by that time was third generation when okay. many of us were immigrants. Mm-hmm. And it had a progressive anti-racist agenda. It was not about, again, a kind of ethnic project, but it was looking at social justice and, and ways that Issues affected Asians. We also published a lot of people who became well-known as writers, like, you know, Joy Kogawa, who was already known, mm-hmm. Kerry Sakamoto, um, yeah, a number of Sky Lee, 
number of different kinds. And it was of already intersectional like that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I joined that group and I started writing. That's how I started writing. Okay. So I wrote things on film because I was interested in film. I may have been studying film by then. I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. I would think I was making. I didn't make my first work that is still circulated until 1984. But uh, I was interested in those issues and yeah, did did some writing. I started. I, I mean, I and then I became addicted. There is a way that I actually find writing. I'm not sure if it's easier because I I take a lot of time to write. You know, my students say I spend half an hour on this. I said something. How did that sentence go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so that still keeps us on the first question, and uh, I, I wanted you to expand on that text, but you were also leading into your first. Uh, when we're talking about most important work, then you were going to talk about film video. What product has the most resonance with out there or for yourself? Oh, so that one, the one that uh, circulates the most is probably uh, Sea in the Blood, which yeah. is a piece that I did. It came from a number of things. One is that my family has a blood disease called thalassemia. So they were, my parents had eight children and four of us are alive. And I'm the last. And so I grew up with a sister who eventually died at 30. We were very close. And so it's about death. And then my partner is HIV positive, has AIDS. And so I realized there are only three years in my life where the person closest to me wasn't facing some kind of issue of mortality. Mm. And I began to wonder what that was like growing up and like just reconsider that. But also there's a way in which the AIDS movement and the way that it theorized or thought about medicine and the impact of medicine, the medical gaze, etc., made me rethink some of the stuff about my sister. Oh, how so? Well, because, you know, my sister... Okay, my sister, her prognosis is very poor. My brother, before From an me, early age? Yeah. Okay. So my brother before me was diagnosed, and he died at five. He died at the age of five. And then my sister, her prognosis was she was supposed to die by the age of 12. But my mother took her to Britain, where she was seen by the Queen's physician, for free. Wow. And it was because... Asians were known to have this disease. Thalassemia is thalassa, which means sea. So it means sea in the blood, mm. really, literally. And it was mean, it was known as a disease of Greeks and Italians. Okay. It refers to the Mediterranean Sea. So the fact that there was this Chinese girl with it was interesting to scientists. So she was a scientific subject. Okay. And um, she went to England. I think she was like 13. They would wheel her out into these big amphitheaters full of medical oh students yeah. and stuff like that and she kind of loved it because she was a bit of a celebrity <laughs> right um, she had her spleen taken out and all that but it was through the AIDS and thinking about that that made me rethink the whole question of what it means to be an object of scientific inquiry mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and the human and then I began to look at medical um, medical texts and how they cut people off or how yeah. people are there as illustrations of diseases or whatever. So that's that. But during the AIDS crisis, I mean, I think the biggest shock was when people are sharing medicines or so and refuse to be that sort of blind study yeah. type of thing. So, but for, for a child, there's not really an opportunity to resist in the same way. So did she feel or did you feel on her behalf that that different subjectivity really stunted her life in another way or... Or is it more concerned about the looming death that shaped her? 
mean, I never got a sense from her that she felt victimized mm. by that. I mean, she was grateful because it extended her life. Yeah. Um, and again, as a child, she felt a little bit of a celebrity because she was never, she never went to high school. She wasn't able to, you know, she wasn't seen seen to be healthy enough. So she didn't have that kind of network of, you know, peers that other people kind of take for granted and stuff like that. So just thinking about all those kinds of things it made me think about illness and then the other thing that I did was my first video was called uh, Orientations, Lesbian and Gay Asians. And it comes out of activism. But it also, it ended up being, because I never planned to be a filmmaker. <laughs> but I was working on the first, what was the first anti-racism film festival in Toronto, which was 1984. It was called Color Positive, And I was hired by the Development Education Center Tech Films to work on this festival. Um, it was an interesting festival. Um, we showed a lot of work. We brought in Michelle Parkinson from the States and Chris Spottedigo from from the city of Minneapolis at that time as mm -hmm. guests. And it was a film distribution company, and they asked me what I was working on. I said, I'm just doing this little thing. John Grayson had to come back from New York and said he'd shoot it for me. And wow. so we made this film, and then they wanted to see it. And then Sue Ditta, who yeah. ended up being at the Canada Council and yeah. the National Gallery, um, programmed it. Okay. And then uh, the Flaherty Seminars in New York programmed it, and then I kind of found myself making films. So what informs your sort of narrative approach? I mean, it seems to be coming from your body. Um, it's different things. I mean, I some of the work that I do doesn't look like other work. So some of it, like I made a film with Ali Kazemi and John Grayson in the mid-'90s called Rex vs. Singh in which we look oh, yes. at... Um, court case. Uh, yeah, the court case yeah. uh, and all that. And my section of that is very experimental. Mm. Um, and then some of them are talking head, like the first one, and then reorientation is talking head doc. I mean, I have a casual approach to filmmaking. So, yes, it's, it moves between very straightforward doc, and partly depends on who I want to see the work and what, I, what work I think I wanted to do. So um, I did a film in 19... I, video in 1991 called Out of the Blue, which is about a young black man from Trinidad who had been falsely arrested by police and faced all these, you know, the usual kind of racist experience with the police. And I wanted that to go on TV. Okay. So I knew it had to be very straightforward in form. And I try to do some little bit of things to unsettle people. So it starts with a group of seven looking landscape in Northern Ontario. Then in comes this little motorboat with Julian in it because his family happened to be a middle-class Trinidadian family and they had a cottage on Stony Lake. So it's like class, black people, inner city, the that whole idea of black yeah, people, yeah. that term Urban we don't hear anymore, like, inner city. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, Canadian landscape and stuff like that. And so I did those kinds of experiments, but the form is very straightforward. So yeah, the approach to form varies. This is leaping, but it made me think. So one of the questions that have come up here is about changes in bodies and as we get mm -hmm. older, but with this complex relationship to genetic diseases and AIDS, do you have anything to say about in relation to your own body now? Um, it's been interesting being in this environment. I, I haven't felt like a, 
a wise person or a senior person until I've been in this group. <laughs> I'm, you know, very healthy. But it made me think, you know, just the other day about my own father and my relation. My body is almost the same as his and it's these echoes. Have your, your relation to your body changed over this time? or? Well, for sure. Um, mm. Well, pain. I did karate uh, for 20 years and had to give it up because I had knee pain, which yeah. thanks to physiotherapists, I actually don't have knee pain right now. Okay. But it's mind. There's mind, memory. I recently retired, and there are a number of reasons for that. One of them is, it's a minor reason, but, you know, being in class and saying, there's such and such an artist. I'll tell you oh. who it is uh, when I remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. And so that this sense of memory, forgetting... I don't usually forget people. I forget their names often. Okay, yeah. yeah that's often. And yeah. it's often people I know well. Yes. And then I, the more I panic, the more it's like, oh, what is it? What is it? Yeah. And then it comes a day later, that kind of thing. So I'm actually uh, not a very good subject to ask about things. Cause I, I find myself yeah. caught in the same way. But that's been lifelong. I mean, yeah. Hopefully it's not deteriorating. But I find uh, a great deal of pleasure, even though it's painful in writing, because I can go and check and bring yeah, that information yeah, yeah. in. Uh, do you continue to write too to keep that going, well, there are a couple or is it of less less uh, immediate for you? Well, I mean, I'm I am kind of trying to challenge myself to do more. There are two challenges I think in terms of writing or production. One another reason that I decided to retire was. You know, I, I taught in a department of film, video, performance, and electronic art. Mm -hmm. And I can't keep up with the codex and all of this, you know, the way that it's, um, on the one hand, seemed to be accessible, but on the other hand, it's very complex and requires a particular kind of knowledge of computers and electronics that I feel is outside of my grasp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, young people just swim in it, right? So. Yeah. Um, but also, it seems like a lot of the stuff that I wrote, when I was trying to make interventions and maybe clarify issues, like, you know, writing around cultural appropriation in Fuse Magazine, for example, mm -hmm. trying to say that, yeah, I mean, indigenous people are taking a, a, an essentialist position. It's about, let me write my story before you write it, yeah. or show respect if you make a film, right, or go into my territory or something. And now I feel that the context is so judgmental, so fast responsive that they're in the kind of activist milieu that I work in seems there seems to be less space for that kind of slow thinking or asking people to parse things through. Mm -hmm. And then the academic writing has become so obtuse, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the queer theory writing and... The stakes around things seem to be so small, and the stakes seem to be about, you know, who gets tenure, really, yeah, to be frank, yeah. rather than any kind of impact that you can have onto real issue, the real world, and stuff like that. So I have been a bit reluctant in terms of making interventions. I mean, I've been doing things like I'd write, you know, I wrote, I wrote an essay for Sonia Dollywell's catalog and that kind of thing. But that kind of writing and... Um, it seems to have moved to such a different place. It's like all sort of, I feel like sometimes trapped or enmeshed, like a fly in a spider's web of all the kind of footnotes and things that academic 
writing this. I wrote for Fuse and other journals a fair bit. Then I went back and did my master's in the 90s. Yeah. And then when I came out of Oise, I had to, um, I think I took two years to detox and be able to write, (laughs) to be able to write again, uh, rather than in this very particular way that academic writing is. But there's... There's so much room for writing. I mean, even if it's just something online and blogging or whatever. But do you think that you have less to say, or is it the form? In some ways, I have less to say. I mean, people ask me to do things. Partly, I think people want me often to rewrite the stuff that I've written already. Okay. And I'm not interested in doing that. I mean, yeah. I think I move on to, you know, I'm particularly I'm fascinated by the questions around Israel-Palestine, having been there and having access both to Palestinian sources but also Israeli sources. The Toronto-Palestine Film Festival ended a couple of weeks ago. Actually, last week I was, uh, at this time, I was um, moderating a panel with Hiba Abdullah, Alison Duke, and Wanda Nanibush at the festival. Yeah. In one of the films, there was an image of settlers uh, Israeli settlers burning down an olive tree, oh, an olive tree, yeah. and that happens a lot. There's That's a huge amazing. destruction, and I'm thinking, I have never seen this image, never heard a reference to this very common phenomenon in the liberal Canadian press. Yeah. So when people say, you know, critique of Israel is anti-Semitism, da 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 da, they're acting out of complete absence of knowledge of mm-hmm. actually what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are working on this issue, saying, no, it's not about identity, it's about mm-hmm. actions, policies, practices. And trees um, and water and... All yeah. of those kinds yeah, of things. Mm-hmm. So um, that kind of question or, you know, one was asked around the relationship of, of Palestinians adopting the discourse of being indigenous or not. And I think those are really rich, interesting questions, but it's also fraught. A lot of the academics I know who've written about Israel-Palestine are facing all kinds of suits and, you know, harassment and stuff like that, um, which I'm happy to, to, to deal with. I was involved with a, Palestine, a queer Palestine solidarity group called Queers Against Israeli Apartheid. And it was named such, I mean, we were told, why don't you call yourself Queers of Palestine? But for me... It's those policies, but also the fact that those policies are able to stand up because of the support of countries like Canada, mm-hmm. who, who um, for various reasons, are not willing to look. And so that's kind of something I'm really interested in. I'm interested in how to increase the understanding of Indigenous issues within my communities, of people who migrate here. And sometimes I say my communities, I mean... In this case, perhaps Chinese immigrants, although I have very little, I feel so inauthentic or connected to actually, to people from Asia who are Chinese. But it's something I I feel is important to do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the Chinese Canadian National Council has been doing some of that work. And I think that kind of work is important, but also the ethical issues and the political issues of how to do that work right. (laughs) But I think too... Maybe rather than going into text, these kind of oral and sometimes confrontational uh, relationships and dialogues might be a better, more productive space. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking, too, of, I think it was Syrian uh, refugees coming to the plains, and there was a 
First Nations people were responding that we didn't invite them at first, and they just set this terrible relationship. And then there were some relations made of, well, we're going to we're going to welcome them. Mm -hmm. And so there have been uh, forays where people get to go to powwows and that sort of thing. And it's it's a beginning and difficult first steps, but it's allowed Indigenous folks to become understand themselves as hosts mm -hmm. rather than always be set. And I'm hoping that's how things change. And and maybe these are non-textual at their at their best. Yeah. So maybe that's the shift. But that's why I become really interested in kind of social practice. Yeah. It's very scary <laughs> to do it. Yeah. And it's small. But there's something about the small and the intimate that's also attractive as opposed to you know making a film and throwing it out there. Mm -hmm. Like broadcast mm -hmm. something that goes to broadcast and you have no control, you have no conversation with anyone who's looking at it. Um, and that's why the cooking projects that I've been doing have been interesting to me also because I've been long interested in food and food history and, mm -hmm. you know, the impact of different things, how things spread, how things spread by choice, how they enrich people's life, how they, um, how they endanger people's life. It just interests me. I've been surprised watching people, you know, a few generations older than me, who I, I guess I would call them activists, who simply disappear after their academic career. But that hasn't been the case for any, or maybe not any, but very few artists uh, and so-called marginalized people in Canada. It just keeps going, and your activism seems to be part of that dialogue. And I'm really glad it includes the Indigenous. And I actually, I have to ask you this question. When did that begin? Because that's been late for many, many folks. I was there for the Minquan Panchet, was that been 27 yeah. years? And it, it blew my mind that we're Indigenous, we're being included in these larger... Mm. It was shocking. Well, I have to say that for me, the organizing around the arts I've done have always, has always included Indigenous people. Mm. So I, I talk about that festival in 1984, but then other things that I was involved with, like shooting the system in 1990 and um, Race to the Screen, which I did. I mean, just was looking back at the notes that I was hardly thinking. And That's I, amazing. One of the things that was, is like quoting, you know, like native, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, Kat Cayuga. Yeah. But I work with Monique Mohika. Um, we go back a long time. And I think it has to do with, as I said, coming to Canada and really very early realizing how come, you know, what's expected of me is to have be fluent in English and French and not Ojibwe. Because, yeah. I'm, you know, like where I'm in, in Toronto. So that kind of knowledge has always been interesting to me. And I, I joined the Canadian Friendship Society. I went to the Canadian Friendship Society not long after I came to Toronto because um, I wanted to know that's so extraordinary it's something i don't think it's yeah. i mean it's not it, i think it probably just has to do with how i grew up and where i grew up and the time that i grew up in which was really trying to think critically about colonial knowledge i just think it's it's been um it's a different environment i'm thinking with primary colors and other places i've been involved with that it's not an adversary relationship you know when you're indigenous and um working with people who have, again, I go back to that word, complex backgrounds, mm -hmm. because they're, it's not only that they're non-colonial, even relationship to settlement and relation to the territory is different. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, David. thank you. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Richard Fung by David Garneau. I'm Rebecca Jelaine, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. 
The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Meunier, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.